Okay, we're in the middle of Lent, and um, up until now we've talked about Lent from the perspective of uh, moving toward the resurrection, okay? Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and that's one of the highlights of our year as Christians. But there's another thing behind Lent that we haven't talked about yet so far this year, and today it's going to become very significant in one of the covenants, and that has to do with service. You see, when we talk about Lent, uh, traditionally throughout the church, the various denominations, sacrifice and service has been a part of it. For those of you that come from higher church uh, backgrounds, that sacrifice typically looks like you give up something. And that's good. There's no complaint there. I think that's really wonderful because it helps you to focus. But I want to add a dimension to it. Okay, In the Bible, when you think of sacrifice, sacrifice is in fact a giving up something, but it's giving up something for someone else. You're sacrificing for someone else, just not for yourself only. So I'd like to encourage, suggest, have you pray about who you might know that you could sacrifice for. Some, maybe somebody needs financial help. Maybe somebody needs just simple time with you. Maybe somebody's discouraged and needs some encouragement. And so be thinking of someone that you know, because your world, all of us have different worlds, and, um, and find a way to reach out to encourage them. Okay, so up until now, we're still in the series, The House That God Built, uh, coming off of Leviticus a year ago, where uh, Leviticus lays the blueprint for the house of God. And so when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that house is now being built. We can see it. And so for Lent, we're taking a little detour out of Ephesians to look at the covenants. You see, the covenants of Scripture, if you think about them, think of yourself in a very dark room. Sometimes, when, especially during the winter when it gets dark early, when I leave, I cut through the sanctuary to go out the back door to my house right over here. But when I walk in here, there's no light. There's nothing. And, uh, and honestly, I, I now turn on my flashlight, Right? so that I can see, because there's been more than once I've run into the chairs. I think I'm going this way, but I'm actually going that way. And so I I use my flashlight often because I really can't see anything in here because it's that dark. So that's what the world is like. The world is dark. And uh, picture kind of a, a, as well, David says it this way, your word is a light for my feet so I can see the potholes or the rocks and a lamp for my path so I can see down the road. That's what the covenants are like. The covenants give us a glimpse, if you will, a light through the darkness of not only where we've come, but where God is taking us. So we looked uh, up, we've looked at two covenants so far. The first one was a covenant God made when he created everything. We call that a covenant with the cosmos. So he created the, um, the earth, solar system, everything in it all the um, inanimate objects, and then he created the animate objects, the inhabitants on the earth. And they each have different responsibilities. For example, the sun, the moon, and the stars were given the assignment to regulate the days, seasons, the months, the weeks, the years. That was their job. And that's what they do. That's why they're there. God put them there on purpose to regulate those, those, that time throughout the year. The earth itself was designed to take care of us, but it can't fulfill its purpose without us because it can't, you need, it needed us to cultivate it so that it could produce enough food. So then the, we have the responsibility, Genesis 1, to take care of the earth. One, I mean, that's what we call the cultural mandate. 
God created us to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, et cetera, et cetera. So our job is to rule over creation and to, to uh, be God's vice regent, if you will, to take care of everything, including the animals. That's our job. So with every covenant in Scripture um, that it, where God is involved, it's a disparity covenant. God is here and we are here. And what that means is there's no negotiation. Can't, you can't negotiate with God, say, here's what I'm going to do. Nor can you uh, negotiate the benefits. You can't negotiate the punishment or consequences. You can't negotiate any of that. You can't even negotiate God's calling. All, the only choice you have is to obey or disobey. So he put Adam and Eve in the garden, said, cultivate it, rule over all of this stuff, okay? But then he said, um, the requirement is for obedience, there's always a test, the requirement for obedience is don't eat from the one tree. The one tree. We've already talked about why that's significant. It's not haphazard. It's just not God picked a tree at random. He picked a very significant tree because we're not made for the knowledge of good and evil. We're not made for that. Uh, that's God's domain. I don't know your motives. I don't know your circumstances. So I can never accurately assess what you're doing, uh, with, whether it's right or wrong or how good it is. It's interesting, I was in Mozambique, and um, as you know, week before last, uh, maybe it was last week, I can't remember anymore. <laughs> so I was in Mozambique, and we were talking about sin management. We are talking about sin, rather. And, and like many of our churches, they have this, this propensity to want to grab hold of sin and stop it. And I finally asked them, why are you guys, these pastors, the men and women that are sitting there, why are you so focused on sin management? And they'd never heard it uh, that language. I never thought of it that way. They kind of looked at each other, kind of chuckled, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, none of us have the ability with another human to convict, redeem, or transform. So why are you so busy trying to manage sin? And they said, well, isn't that our job? No, that's not your job. Your job is to worship the Lord and lead people to the Lord. That's your job. And so we're a church where I don't try to manage people's sin. I don't even worry about it. You know, you have the freedom to do what you want to do. That's the reason Christ has set you free. Galatians 5. If you want to sin, have fun. Okay, go for it. And then when your life gets in trouble, I'm going to be there to help you. I don't want you to go down that road. We've talked about that many times. That's not an invitation to go do what you want because you will not be happy. So one guy said, well, isn't church discipline, isn't that about sin? And I go, no. And they all just started laughing because they had never heard that. I said, church discipline is about taking care of the unity of the flock. It's about protecting the church. If it was about sin, can you imagine what it would be like? Okay, Here, here's the way it works. So I don't even know you. Okay, So you walk in and I said, did you lust after a woman this week? We're going to have to engage in church discipline. Okay, How about you? Were you greedy this week? Did you give generously? Uh, we're going to have to talk about that. Okay, <clears throat> how about you? Did you get angry? Oh, you just committed murder. Now we've got to talk about that. <clears throat> Imagine if church discipline was about sin. When Jesus said that, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you do, you've, I mean, don't lust after a woman. You've already committed adultery. Don't get angry because you've already committed murder. Do you think he was joking? Do you think that was a rhetorical device? Do you think Jesus, Paul, and Peter, do you believe their words? If you do any of those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, that's reality. 
We don't understand depravity really because we're immersed in it. You don't know what it's like not to sin. None of us do. That's called depravity. That's what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed the covenant. And so now you're beginning to understand if that is reality, no wonder we need grace. No wonder we need a Savior. No wonder Paul can say, there is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3. And that's a quote from the Psalms. Do you realize the seriousness of this? So when Adam decided to reject and Eve, they decided to reject the covenant and eat of the one tree they weren't supposed to, there's no way we can overstate the devastation in creation that occurred. So God kind of sat back and he watched. And then we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 and we see humanity spiraling down. Every evil thing that we can begin to see starts to surface because they violated the covenant. Paul in Romans 1 discusses this in depth in great detail about how every single human is now without excuse. You willfully choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Every human on the planet. Because everything you need to know about God is made evident or plain, it says in Romans 1 to you. You have no excuse. No human in the world has an excuse. Okay? Famous question. What about the, you know, it's heard it so many times. What about the pygmy in Africa? What about the, you know, whatever? It doesn't matter. No human has an excuse because you have all the evidence you need because the original covenant with creation, cosmos, was designed to reflect the glory of the Lord so that you wouldn't have an excuse. You could see God by looking at creation. So the issue, Paul says, is that you decide to reject that for your own hedonistic pleasure. Okay, and Romans, uh, I mean, uh, Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6 demonstrate that, that spiral down in humanity. So in, Roman, in uh, Genesis 6, God decides to intervene again. Uh, you know, the great flood story. But the theology of it is what's amazing because the theology of the story of Noah has to do with the renewal of the covenant with Adam. So Adam disobeyed the covenant. No, but Noah did not. You see, the words that describe Noah are the same words that you just described Enoch. They both walked faithfully with God. So Enoch had the privilege of getting an early departure just to go be with the Lord. Noah had the privilege of staying here and represent kind of a reboot, a recalibration, if you will, of humanity because he was faithful. So we're starting all over again. So then we have a new covenant. And I talked last week how part of that covenant uh, was the same as Adam. Uh, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And I said last week, and I'll say it again, I'm not going to get into the issue of ethics, of reproductive rights and all that. You can figure that out on your own. But what I can tell you is this. Reproduction is seen as both a command and a blessing from God. That's, that's what we know. It's always seen as a blessing. We're going to see it really big in this covenant coming up here today. It's a blessing. But there's another, another dimension added that all of a sudden the animals become terrified of us, humans. 
God, that's part of the covenant with Noah. I'm going to put the fear of you in the animals. And I argued last week, I suggested that that's, that's for the benefit of the animals because depravity is taking us down, 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 down. And we have the incredible ability to destroy everything. And so by putting fear in the animals, they keep a distance from us. And that's for their protection. I mean, we still have problems. I'm so glad we have organizations that monitor extinction of animals so we can say, hey, let's leave these guys alone. But we have poachers. We have all of that. And so it just goes to show you. I mean, if you go with me to some of the developing nations, they have no regard for animals, none whatsoever. And so God knew that was going to happen, I believe. And so part of the covenant with Noah, once because... In the Noah experience, the animals were coming to him. They're tame. And then he put the fear in there, and they run away. And now that's their tendency is to run away and stay away from us uh, because for their own protection. So now the years go by. So Noah comes out of the flood, and God says, what does he say to do? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You see, part of the covenant is the earth. We have to fill the earth so it can serve its purpose. And that's what God planned for us to do. What happened? We don't like to obey God, do we? We really don't. Let's just group together. That's the very next thing that happened. Now, many years have gone by because now we have a whole bunch of people groups. So God's very patient. He's never in a hurry. He's never never in a hurry. So all the nations, the people that existed at that time, instead of spreading out, they grouped together. <clears throat> Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11. So God, through the miracle of linguistic separation, fine, he said, he spreads them out, forces them to go because they can't talk to one another. And they all spread out to do what he wanted on the earth. By the way, that word scatter, he scattered them in the Greek Old Testament is the same word used in Romans 8.1. He scattered the church. You see the early church clung together. And so he scattered them through persecution. The disciples went all over the world, and so did Christians. And they began telling people about the, the one true God, Jesus, and his love for them. And so we were spiraling downhill even further. The one thing the first two covenants did not deal with was us, our hearts. And so starting in Genesis 12, we have God decides to implement his plan of redemption. And we're going to come to a new covenant. And this time it's going to be with Abraham. Sure enough, God looked around and he found a faithful person. Just like he did with Noah. His name was Abram. And we'll call him Abram until we get to the reason why he changed his name. So, uh, Abram was given a simple command in Genesis 12. This is our... After the Tower of Babel, the Lord said to Abram, go. It's real simple. Go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Okay, right off the bat, remember I said, you don't have a choice. You can't negotiate. You can't say, yeah, God, I don't want to go there. I think I want to go north. You can't do that. Go. And so he had no idea where he's going. He just knew that God had said go. So he can choose to obey or disobey. That's always true. That's the, one of the core essential elements of human dignity is God gives us choice. Honestly, that's why I give you choice. Okay, we're not a sin management church. We're going to let you do really crazy things. But we're going to be there when the world gets crazy, because it will. 
with sin, it always will. Because our whole goal is to bless you and provide redemptive pathways for you to come back to the Lord in grace. That's the goal for each of us. So he says, go. And guess what? He went. I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't gone. You know, when you look in the book of Numbers, my theme title for Numbers is God has patience and the desert has sand. So the first generation blew it. He said, fine, you're all going to die in the desert. Be buried in the sand. Second generation was trusting. But if they had been disobedient, he would have said, fine, you're going to be buried in the sand and uh, we'll wait for the third generation. Third generation, oh, you're not trustworthy either. You're sinful. Well, the desert's got plenty of sand. We'll bury you there. I'll wait for the fourth generation. And he's going to wait until he has one. He has that much patience. So he found a man that went. And that changed world history. Just like Noah did. Changed world history. So he goes. And so God promises him. This is not the covenant. This is the promise which uh, Julie read of what would happen. I will make you into a great nation. He's just one man and a wife and some servants and animals. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the surprise. This sets the stage for the rest of the story in the Bible. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Wow. Can you imagine being told that? All of the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. So just as Noah was called to be God's divine agent of care for creation, and therefore that carries on to us from last week, Abraham is now called to be God's divine agent to bless the world, to be a blessing, and that carries on to us. That's why we've said hundreds of times, God has blessed you so that you can bless others. We're going to ask this question several times today. Do you really actually believe that we can be a blessing to this county? Do you believe that? Forget the politics. Forget the policies. Forget the procedures. Just for a moment. Forget the committees and the boards and the, the leadership. Just, just for a moment, forget that. Do you actually believe we can be a blessing to these people right here? Through our love and our blessing. I'm telling you, we can... We can turn this county upside down. We really can. Well, okay. Well, then you have the story from there. Abram goes down to Egypt. He does get the land because it belongs to someone else. And uh, he comes back and he has uh, three guys that give him the land to, to bury some of his people when they die. And then from there you have Abraham and Lot, Abram and Lot. And uh, remember, he has to go rescue Lot. And you have Sodom and Gomorrah. You have all those stories, right? In between. So years pass. Remember, God's not in a hurry. If you look at the number of times that God actually communicated with people, we get the story compressed. So it looks like they're having this ongoing conversation. It's not. It's like every 10 to 20 years, God steps into the world and has a conversation with them. That's why we are so blessed because we have the Holy Spirit. We commune every day 
They didn't have that privilege. Okay? And so now many years have passed. Beginning of chapter 15 begins with, After this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. You see, God loves to lavish blessing. That's his nature. Ephesians 3, just where we left off before Lent. To him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. That's the God that we serve. I am your very great reward. Okay, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. That's his servant, by the way, his slave. And Abram goes one step further. You have given me no children. See, that's an accusation. Okay, now we're back to reproductive rights and what you think about it. Okay, no one in the Old Testament thought this was by chance. No one. Uh, in fact, no one in most of the history of the church thought this was by chance. It's only been in recent years with science and all of that that we have that ability to think differently. They all assumed one thing. God decides whether you get pregnant or not. It's God's decision. And so uh, I happen to believe it. Many of you know the stories. Uh, my stories, I came to Christ at 19. By God's grace, I'm grateful that I don't have illegitimate children running around. And then I get married and my wife is terminally ill. And we have intimate relations one time with three forms of birth control and she gets pregnant. Okay, I've told the teens, don't play with God. Just don't mess with him. Okay, if he can make a virgin pregnant, he can do whatever he wants. And so Abram's perspective here is he's blaming God. You have given me no children. So I guess we'll have to make do with the servant in my household. Okay, now what's going to happen here? God is about to commit himself permanently, permanently, and irrevocably to this covenant with Abraham and his descendants, to Abraham and his descendants. That's us, by the way. So God has reminded him of the covenant because all these things have happened. And so Abram says, well, uh, since you didn't fulfill your promise, I'll use my servant. How's that? And God says, no. Remember, you can't negotiate with God. This is an example of trying to negotiate the covenant. And God says, no. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. No, no, no negotiation. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay, this is a fascinating passage because we know from Joshua that he came from the other side of the river and so they worshiped the stars and other things like that. And so God went out now that he's learning to trust the Lord. And he shows him the stars and said, I'm the one true God. I get to decide, not you. This is not your covenant. This is my covenant. That's why the Bible never says our covenant. It's always my covenant. Okay? So you see all the stars? You see them all? Now he was used to the stars. That's his world. And he said, that's how many you're going to have through your own flesh and blood. And then one of the most significant verses in the Bible, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, 
believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Paul uses this example and this verse right here in both Romans and Galatians to show that uh, salvation is simply by faith. He simply believed. This is where his faith became real, right here, looking under the stars. Okay? It's interesting to me, uh, as I've transitioned through my own uh, theology over the years, I now no longer ask people when you came to Christ, because you don't really know. I mean, you could give me a date, maybe that you went forward, walked an aisle, a date that you prayed, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't really know when that happened. It's, it's fascinating to me in the Gospels. They start out with calling Jesus Rabbi and Messiah, and at the end, they're bowing uh, before him. But in the middle of that, you don't know where they act, their faith became real. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until you show me. Peter betrayed him. Judas never did believe. Okay, so where your faith became real is the real question. So when I'm talking to people, I'll ask them, Where do, when did your faith or how did your faith become real in Jesus? He had some level of faith because he walked. He went out where he told him to go. But here's where he actually believed and his faith became real. Okay, I don't even know where my own faith became real. I can narrow it down to a three-year window. And so I actually picked a month toward the end of the three-year window. That way I can tell you I've been a Christian 45 years. So I have a marker, but I don't actually know what happened. All I know is one day I wasn't sure, and the next day I go, hmm, I believe my faith is real. And honestly, I'll be very honest with you. When I look at you, I don't know which of you have real faith and which of you are pretenders. I can't tell. I don't have that ability. Matthew 7, Jesus says, on that last day, some of you are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we uh, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? He said, away from me, I never knew you. You're pretending. I hope you're all there. I hope you are. You should think about that. How real is your faith? This is where his faith became real, right here. Okay? But then, guess what? There's more. In verse 7. God also said to him, I am Yahweh. That's how he often starts these covenant passages. I am the one in charge. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram asks, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How could I know? Okay. That seems a little strange to us. But how would he know? I mean, his faith just became real. How do I know what you're saying is true? What is this even going to look like? And God does one of the most amazing things in biblical history. He says, get a bunch of animals, cut them in half, lay them on the ground, equal parts. You see, in the ancient world, this was the most common way of what they call cutting a covenant. It's like today, we sign, we execute a contract Okay, wasn't too long ago, we shook hands, different ways through different parts of history. Today, we execute a contract. This was God executing the covenant. So what they did was they would lay the animals down, and the two parties would walk together down between the two, uh, all the dead animals, the halves. And when they got to the other end, they'd look at each other and say, so as these animals, so be it to me if I don't carry out my part of the covenant. That's how they did it. That's how they executed a covenant. Okay, but this is a remarkable one, the way God did it. So here's how God makes the covenant. I'm just going to read this to you. As the sun was setting, 
Abram fell. Now you expect both God and Abram to walk down between the animal pieces, but that's not what happens. It's dark now. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own land, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated. You know what he's prophesying here? Egypt. Slavery in Egypt. But I will punish the nation, and they, uh, the punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, we're going to talk about that one in just a minute. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see, that's how he did it. What he said was, Abram wasn't asked to walk down there. God is the one making the covenant. Okay? I'm the one, he's the one making the covenant. It's what's so stunning about this is that he's willing to stake his own existence, his own life, on his commitment. Uh, Abram knew exactly what he was saying. If I break my covenant, this is what I'll be like. This is what will happen to me. This is one of the most fascinating, fascinating promises in the Bible. So this promise to be a blessing to the whole world. That was a promise, okay? Executed in this covenant is eternal. It's eternal. And we're his descendants. That's why we have the privilege of being a blessing to the whole world. Okay, pause just for a little curiosity. Okay, you're God, and you have 70 people living in the land of Israel. Jacob and his sons and their families. And you want, to, um, you want to grow them into a great nation to carry out this promise. How would you do it? Well, here's how God did it. Stroke of brilliance. He moved them through a variety of supernatural events into the only superpower of the ancient world, Egypt. And not only that, it's a superpower that a uh, powerful nation that despised the Israelites. So they separated them to put them in their own little space so that they wouldn't intermarry. Their food is taken care of. All their needs are taken care of. The army protects them. They don't have to worry about anything. He just plants them there and steps back and lets them grow. That's what's happening on one side. But on the other side, we have this really curious phrase that the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. You know, it's fascinating. I told you that that the Old Testament reflects this decline of humanity steadily downhill as depravity takes more and more roots. People more and more reject God and they turn to their own hedonistic pleasures and their own evils. Well, at this particular time in history, uh, the land still, the peoples of the land still demonstrated some level of innocence. Genesis 14, you have Melchizedek, for example, the king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem. So when he comes back from rescuing Lot, uh, Melchizedek greets him and rewards him and praises him for what he did. You have uh, Mamre, Aner, Eshkol, Genesis 14. That's one, they're the ones who, Canaanites, who gave him land 
to, uh, to take, to bury his dead people and all of that. So they're showing kindness. You have Abimelech, Genesis 20. You have Tamar and Judah in uh, Genesis 38. Okay, she's a Canaanite. You have Tamar a little bit later on. Uh, uh, I mean, sorry, Rahab, the prostitute. And so you have these snippets of, informa- of people that are still demonstrating some level of kindness and I would say innocence. And so what God is doing over here, he's protecting the nation of Israel to let them grow. And then over here, he's allowing Canaan and all the nations that exist within the land of Canaan to, for their sin to, re- to reach full potential. We already know what happens when there's faithful people. He turns to them and blesses them. But these people are consistently turning more and more and more evil. By the time of the conquest with Joshua, the peoples had succumbed to very, very debased, debased evils. Um, they were worshiping Baal, worshiping Asherah, other Canaanite deities. They're sacrificing children. And so their, their sin had continued to grow. And God was just waiting. And it reached its full potential. And he said, enough is enough. Enough is enough. They have made the permanent decision to reject me. Therefore, Joshua, take them out. This is a recalibration. So God is showing grace here by allowing space for several hundred years for the Canaanites to decide, are they going to turn against God or are they going to follow him? The smoking fire pot, the blazing torch, that represents a theophany. God himself walks by himself down through these animals uh, to show that he alone is making the commitment, the covenant. So the land is a very interesting phrase, a, a very interesting idea, because land is included now in the promise. So let me just say a word about the land. I think it, I personally think it most likely represents the wider mission of Israel to the world. Remember the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? All the nations, all the people groups in the world will be blessed through you. And furthermore, we have the Great Commission, Matthew 28. You're familiar with that, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. Then we have Paul's interpretation of this in Romans 4. In uh, Romans 4, okay, it's not through the law. Okay, now he's arguing here in Romans 4, same in Galatians, that you're not saved through the law. He's dealing with people that are arguing that you have to keep the law. So you could say it's not through the Mosaic law that Abraham and his offspring were prom- received the promise. Why is it not through the law? Because they were way before the Mosaic uh, law came. So he's arguing it's not through the law. We're not, we're not rule keepers. We're not, we don't have all these rules you have to keep. I tell my students there were 613 commands, and they go, really? Well, that's a lot. Do you think that's a lot? How many expectations are there in your church? <laughs> do you act the right way? Go to the right place? Do you avoid the right place? Do you wear the right clothes? Do you sing the right way? Do you use the right language? I mean, think about thousands of things. And so he's arguing, Paul, go ahead and put that back up there, that this is not through the law that Abraham and his offspring, that's us, by the way, received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, not just the land of Canaan. But it came through righteousness that comes by faith. And so this is a snapshot for Abram, okay, because this was his world, to show us that we are going to reach the entire world for Christ. God cares about everyone. Okay, but he still hasn't enacted it, so we have to go over to chapter 17. 
uh, where he puts in the next part of the covenant. This is a covenant of circumcision. But here, Abraham, though he had faithfully obeyed, God had still not fulfilled the covenant. Look at verse 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, remember he said, through his own blood, somebody would be the one to fulfill this. So when he's 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Okay, so Abram begins to negotiate again. Okay, falls face down because by now Ishmael has been born to his servant woman. And he says, you know, I still don't have a child. So Ishmael will be fine. (laughs) God, what is God? Can you negotiate with God? No, you can't. But look what God says here to start this conversation in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully. Okay, this walking before me, this language constitutes an appointment to an official role in the divine court. You've seen it in movies. When the king walks, he has his advisors walk in front of him. So this is the, he's authorizing him to take a unique role here. He's authorizing Abram to be able to walk and his descendants back and forth into and out of God's presence. What happened at Resurrection Sunday? This is where we're heading. The veil was torn in two. We can all enter God's presence anytime we desire. This is the beginning of that. And then he says, I will greatly increase your numbers. God is talking about this, making him flourish extravagantly. Now we're back to Ephesians 3. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or even think, right? So then he renames him Abraham from Abram, chapter 17, verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So if he's going to appoint him to that special place in the court, guess what? He has to redefine who he is. That's what we believe today, right? Conviction followed by redemption followed by transformation. You are a new people. The day your faith became real, you stopped being an American of the United States of America, a citizen I mean, and you you started being a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20. Same thing that we see right here. But God was not done. He also had to redefine Sarai because she is the princess, if you will. So in verse 15, God also said to Abraham, now he's Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to be called, call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. So now you have the father of a vast nation or crowd and you have a mother of a vast crowd. What happens Okay, Moses, I mean, Abraham doesn't believe it. Verse 17, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, yeah, right. (laughs) Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So Abraham says, if only Ishmael might. We're too old for children. Some of you get to the point, I get it, four kids and 11 grandkids, I'm done, okay? 
And he's saying, no, 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 you're going to have a child. So he's saying, just take Ishmael. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. So a year later, a year later in chapter 18, three men, one who was, uh, I think, uh, pre-existent Jesus, uh, three men show up and they're talking to him about Sarah. And so they say, let's see here, where am I? Uh, Verse 10, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. So you got a picture of the tent. So here's the tent, and these three guys are meeting with Abraham outside. And she's looking around the corner, listening to the conversation. I'm coming back in a year, and she's going to have a child. Okay? Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? It's such a great passage. Two of the most faithful people in the world are laughing at God. Yeah, right. Okay. Comes back a year later and she has a son. What's his name? What is it? Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? Third masculine singular of the verb to laugh. He laughs. He's laughing. We laughed at him, and now he's laughing at us. God gets the last laugh. That's what, It's one of the greatest stories in history, how God worked this covenant through all these years, and we are the beneficiaries. So what's the end product of that? 2 Corinthians 5. You know the verse, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. That's what this is talking about. But the verse before it is significant. We do not evaluate people any longer on the basis of the world's standards. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature, new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. There's no longer a scarlet A for adultery, scarlet H for homosexuality, a scarlet L for liar, a scarlet G for greed. No longer. That's why we let you be who you're going to be, and the Lord knows what to do. We know how to help you. And so we're not into sin management. We're into redemption. That's what we're into. And so this is one of the most fascinating stories, and this is our story because we get to be a blessing to the world. And that's why I said, do you really believe that God is redefining us enough through transformation and with the power of the Spirit. Do you really believe that us, this church right here, we can turn this county upside down for Jesus? Do you really believe it? I do. I wouldn't have come. When I was interviewing for this church, I looked at other churches. I read doctrinal statements. I read philosophies of ministry and turned away, turned away from them because they weren't interested. They were interested in enclave, protecting themselves. Interviewed with a church that wasn't interested in having any of those sinners as part of the church. They weren't even interested in attracting millennials. Nope. And it's like this church was. That's why I love sharing Christ and having the discussion wherever I am in the world. Whatever plane or ship I'm on, whatever restaurant or bar I'm in, coffee shop, it doesn't matter to me. I love talking to people about it. The worst I've ever gotten in my entire life is I don't want to talk about it. Okay, fine. But most people are curious. They really are. Do you believe that through our trust in the Lord, our living faith, 
that this promise is true, we will be a blessing to the entire world right here. Father, thank you. Thank you for, wow, this remarkable covenant. It's leading us right to Christ. Uh, We know that without these covenants, we don't stand a chance. There's no way we would ever qualify to enter your kingdom. But we're grateful that you remembered us. And you turned the light on, that lamp, that flashlight, so that we can see the truth. Thank you. In your son's name, we pray because we love him so dearly. Jesus, amen.